0: Listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about creating a life that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry, and every week we talk about work, creativity, and community. It means a lot for people to subscribe, so please find us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and all the other neat places that podcasts live on the internet, and follow us on social media. Welcome. This week is going to be a monthly review to the power of three a review of the month's guests and some of the things that they brought to the table, a book review, and the third thing is that it's a review of all of the tabs that I have open on my computer right now, which is a way of telling where my brain is at right now, where my life is at right now, and what I'm learning right now. Hey there! Every month or so i like to kind of look at the guests that i had and talk about some of the things that really stuck with me since i spoke to them and just get a good sort of closing sense on on some of the some of the things that i take away with me it's always really interesting to hear how some people's lives manage to align their work and community and creativity in one all-encompassing place. Chris manages to do that in his business, but then other people like Craig and Meg, while there are elements of all three in what they do, have some separation. They kind of travel from circle to circle, so to speak. And it does bring home that there's no right way to any of this. There are trade-offs, and it's really cool to find out how people navigate those trade-offs. So, with Craig, the first thing I want to observe. So, this was episode five, Craig Addis. And the first thing I want to observe is that what I love about doing this podcast is finding out the really neat things people do. I knew that Craig is an engineer. And if I was at a networking event or a lot of even social events, that's all I would know. And there are stereotypes about engineers, stereotypes about people in the sciences in general. And I would walk away thinking I had. A good picture of the guy, that I, that I even knew the guy. In fact, I do know the guy and I didn't know all the stuff he does. I didn't realize how intricate and interesting and creative and almost, I want to use the word crafty, crafting, makerspace kind of thing his job is, where he's got these really unusual devices that he makes and figuring out how to get them to do what needs to be done from the, from the job is really, really neat. And the fact that, of course, behind knowing what the weather is like are machines telling us what's happening in the weather, are people who made those machines, are people who designed those machines, are people who conceived those machines. That's a pretty neat, deep look into something that I would open up weather.com and never give a second thought to. Craig is a really good example of building creativity into a work life and building community into his creative life. His early experience with scouting led him to boats, and he's created this through line of boat building as both a creative and community act. And then he also does scouting and cooking to fill in any gaps and, and to fill in any other places where he can contribute, which I think is really beautiful. And even though he still has a kid at home, which stretches him a bit thin and it's hard not to overbalance. And then um, I think this was an interesting cautionary bit that it's easy to leech the fun out of fun by making it into work. And I think there were echoes of that in other guests that I've had. But I got very inspired by the breadth of imaginative ways that he has built his world I've thought a lot about what he said, that regardless of what it is you do, you need the equivalent of time out on the water of the lake with the red-winged blackbirds, and that flow is great, but you actually need time in order to be creative. In episode six, Chris Oakley, his path is a pretty unusual one. Um, He joined the circus, and then he went and made his own and I really liked the mix of entrepreneur, teacher, and performer. His school has really blossomed over the last nine years, and he encourages people to find joy in the movement of their bodies and to rediscover our child selves. And that, I just think, is such a gorgeous thing to be doing. And I loved how inclusive the project is. He's always reaching out to more people, more families, more single people. He's always doing free performances, encouraging uh, students to become teachers, encouraging teachers to become producers, holding events that just are there to give people a chance to hang out, like they have movie nights. And there's also an interesting take on community work where You work to become known as a resource so the people in more transient organizations like the colleges can find you, right? Because people in a college, as students, there's a lot of them, but they're only there for four years. But by reaching out to them, you can become a place that they belong for the long term, making connections locally and then making connections through, through you as a resource. The challenges that Chris has encountered are the ones we can all see ourselves wrestling with, that when the business bucks stops with you, you are on call 24-7-365, and it can be just as exhausting as it is exhilarating. And in fact, I can update you on Chris, because since we recorded the podcast, he has stepped away from running the school. He has reassessed what he does, and he is now pursuing a work life that doesn't burn up all his energy, An interesting creative outlet that Chris talked about was the meditative zen of systems and organizing systems, which was a really neat way to look at things, whether it's organizing physical items in an environment or if it's just getting policies and procedures in place, finding out how to, especially with an organization that grows, how to change one set of behaviors, institutional values and behaviors for another set that will allow everybody in a larger organization to get heard. Chris talked about the importance of baking into an organization actual life skills, like how to say no, something that he had to learn and something that he teaches the camp counselors. That's another echo in a number of my podcasts and um, something that seems to be universal That people get to adulthood having been taught over and over and over and over to be willing, compliant, obedient, which are all ways of saying, say yes, say yes to the adults, do what the adults tell you to do, and then you become an adult, and suddenly realize that you really need to learn to say no. That that is a massive skill, and one that you can take on, and the sooner you learn it, the better. And so what Chris does is it's part of his training of uh, camp counselors. So the kids themselves that come in have the awkward conversations because the awkward conversations about being able to say no to things protects children, for one thing, but it also improves transparency and leads to stronger communities of customers that can appreciate the values and policies of the school. So it brings together You'd think that no forces people apart. It doesn't. It makes it clear to those who don't share your values that this isn't a good fit. And it makes it clear to those who do share your values that it is a good fit. Meg talked about deliberately moving from a time of imbalance in her life and intense community work to a place of balance now. She served on her community board of health and with her unique background of epidemiology and nursing, was part of a successful effort to fight the installation of a pipeline in her town. This was in episode seven, last episode. At the same time, Meg was working and parenting. And at the point where the pipeline project was abandoned by the by Kinder Morgan, she found that she had to rest and Refocus and so she returned to taekwondo, something she had dabbled with earlier, but this time made a commitment to master it. In her episode, Meg talked a lot about what I think of as backstage work that behind martial arts is an energy that you present on a given day, and some days you're overthinking, and some days you lack focus. And that beyond that, there's also an improv and creative nature to martial arts that I had never really thought about. I had never thought about martial arts being more than a sport, and I hadn't thought of sports as being really a creative outlet and a meditative practice. But honestly, it absolutely is. I walked away from that thinking, yeah, my definition is too narrow of what creativity can be. In her job, Meg looks for the issues behind the issues and supports students so that they can learn. And she emphasizes the growth mindset, which, while I had heard of it before, I really enjoyed hearing someone talk about practicing it and, and instructing others and encouraging others using the growth mindset. Because it's one thing to read about it, it's another thing to hear how people truly apply it. And she finds that even just adding the word yet to this statement of a discouraged child can bring them back, it can encourage them again, and you can do it, you can encourage a coworker, a friend, and you can encourage yourself to overcome anxiety, to persevere, and grow to mastery, and become resilient. In the description notes for her episode, I'm going to put some links to resources so that you can learn more about growth mindset and some of the other things, really, that all of my guests do. The book this episode that I'm going to review is called 10% Better by Dan Harris, who's a news anchor on network TV. Now, I began meditating a couple years ago, and the more I do it, the more a fan I become. I have to use Meg's growth mindset, though, about the whole thing, because sometimes I have, in fact... I want to say the word achieved but that sounds so wrong because it's not really like a like a an achievement but I have gotten into a calming quiet self reflecting self regulated state but other times plenty of times in fact I would say right now it's probably about 2 to 2 to 8 uh the rest of the time Uh, I have to tell myself that it is called a practice for a reason because I have to sit there and practice and I sit there the entire time telling my brain to please slow down and to please stop shouting and to please stop drifting off into other things like to-do lists. That's not the time for it. So, Dan Harris goes through his own struggles with anxiety, with unhealthy levels of hyper competitiveness, and then which led him to self medication through du- drug use and addiction, always searching for some kind of peace. Now, I don't really share his values. The newsroom jockeying for attention that he talks about, and like who gets a minute and who gets their story, I really couldn't see it as an attractive workplace for maybe for my temperament. You know sometimes you read about places and you think, "Wow, I wish I worked there and I read this book and thought, "Oh, thank God i don't work in a place that's that intense all the time, but I guess I could see the attractiveness of of that intensity for people in any case, It was really interesting and illuminating to see the kind of energy, time, and money that individuals put in the industry put into trying to get my attention my time, and my money. But at the same time, it felt like a game on the surface, a kind of drama-filled hazing that feels like it's supposed to result in quality production. But I don't think you can prove a correlation. And I'd be really interested to know if a workplace was similar, but was calm, or was respectful, or had sort of a dignity side to it, whether it could be as productive, um, for whatever, you know, given, given value of, of productive as the ones that he lives in, the ones that he works in. I just was interested to know, it seemed like an unexamined, Assumption, an unexamined belief that this is how journalism is supposed to work, and therefore this is how journalism works. But is it the best way for journalism to work? Is it the best way for human beings to work? That's not really the point of the book, but it was sort of an interesting peek behind the scenes. And boy, you could see why someone would self-medicate and be miserable under these circumstances. I really do like his critical thinking and the way he writes. He examines the effect of his father's unquestioned beliefs on the life he lives now. His father would say things about, you know, you have to live um, in, in this sort of, you have to put up with these unsafe circumstances in order that you ultimately get safety. And he never really questioned it. And again, that's a belief, which isn't necessarily a truth. So... He did go and do stories on transformational self-help gurus, and that's a lot of fun. It's It gets pretty evident that a lot of them are just selling a brand. And maybe their work helps people, maybe it doesn't, but it doesn't really matter because for the guru himself, and it seems to always, at least the ones he seems to talk about are male, the purpose is the bottom line at the bank account. And in fact, in the end, the most profound experience Harris has is the free one, so I never knew that the 10-day residential meditation retreats don't charge anything. The Zen ones that you sort of, you go in, you're separated by gender, you live there for 10 days, you eat only vegetarian food, you do not speak for all 10 days, it's a complete retreat, your electronics are gone. You go to bed at I think 10 or something, you get up at 4 and you meditate all day. Some of it's movement meditation, some of it's Still meditation. Very, very interesting. And I had no idea that it wasn't something for rich people to do. And the way that they work is that they're so effective that people who've experienced them go back to their regular lives and then donate money so that the next person can go and they pay it forward that way. It's all volunteer donation and volunteer staffing. And Harris's description of his 10 days is pretty great. He is transparent and vulnerable about the frustrations and the struggling of sitting and getting your mind to shut the hell up. And I also really liked his description of the fallout afterwards, where he brought that peace, that zen-like peace, into the workplace and then had to learn to dial down his dialing down in order to do a kind of code switch so that it didn't become the biggest thing about him was that he was all Zen and also that it didn't become something that people felt like he was a pushover about. So he had to kind of re-center himself at work to accommodate both the intensity of work and his sort of new self-knowledge about healthy self-regulation. And then lastly, although the stories in the book make me think that he is probably at least 50% happier, it's helpful to see him develop a narrative so that he can talk to people who are unfamiliar with the concepts and then they can comprehend it, that meditating definitely makes him about 10% happier and framing it that way makes people comfortable with the idea. And, and the book itself is very much like that. It's the work of a practiced writer. So it's a pleasure to read. Next up in my review review of the week are the tabs that I have open. I am learning whether or not it's better to have a Facebook group or a Facebook page for 9 to Thrive. And right now I have a page. I'm wondering about getting a group so that I can ask people what they think about balancing sort of the whole person who works and organizations that are filled with people who work and sort of the humane human and the humane organization. So I was just checking. I, I hadn't really... Thought about groups as being a place where we could have this kind of discussion, um, but there they exist. And so, if I do that, I would love to have you come by and drop in and talk about what you've found valuable or what you um, would like more information about, and um, generally talk about the various things that I've either that have either come up in podcast episodes or that have come up on the Nine to Thrive blog and chat about it. So I'm going to set that up in the next day or two as we come into the holidays. I'd like to have it up in time so that I can take a little break. So I have a couple different tabs open on that. And then I have a ton of tabs open about conferences and events with requests for proposals to speak. That's one thing that I very much want to have feeding into the 9 to Thrive project. To me, it's got a little stool with three legs. One leg is the podcast. One leg is the blog and, and writing. Um, I'm in the middle of writing a book and I'm going to be doing that in January, finishing that in January. And that's about the humane workplace, specifically a nonprofit, setting up a nonprofit workplace. And then the third piece of this is public speaking. So I'm looking at how you get your Get, get the opportunity to do some public speaking. So I have a lot of tabs open on conferences and events. I had a I have a tab open on how to enable dictation from audio to Google Docs, and that's how I've been doing my notes for these um, episodes of the podcast. It's still pretty imperfect, but you get a little app onto your computer called Soundflower. Soundflower reroutes the audio through the computer itself. You actually can't hear while you do this. You open up a Google Doc and you click the tools and then the microphone. And then in a very Harry Potter-esque way, the words start typing themselves out. It's an imperfect system. You have to go back and correct things it often hears things a little bit wrong but on the other hand it looks like it's getting a lot of the words right so we'll see whether that's a good way to do things I am a fast typer but if I could get you know some of the overload of doing that automated then that's a good thing I've got a bunch of tabs open that are instructional tabs about better podcasting and blogging practices This is a hard thing for me and something that I struggle with all the time, which is the balance between learning something and overlearning something. There's a quote that's attributed to Groucho Marx, I think it is, from one of his movies where he says, I don't want to belong to a club that would have me as a member. And the version that I often struggle with is the thought that what I already know isn't enough and that's partly because i love learning but i also think that maybe it comes from some insecurities about whether what i have learned is in fact valuable is in fact going to inform the next things i do and so sometimes i drop into these rabbit holes and right now i have about 30 tabs open about better better podcasting and blogging things like the podcaster's business plan the writer's business plan and I have a couple friends whose anxiety goes up when they see more than two or three tabs open, and right now I feel like this is the kind of scenario where they would be walking out of the room rather than look at my laptop screen. I have a fantastic article on Medium by Kira Lay called, Your Hiring Process is Broken. I stumbled across it. I read it. I loved it. And I ended up having a really great conversation with the author on LinkedIn. I'm going to put a link to that article in the episode description for this episode, because you will want to read it. She is blunt. She is thorough and she is right. So it was a lot of fun to, uh, I guess, have my, my own suspicions confirmed, but then also to be able to go on LinkedIn and have a little chat about it It was also a lot of fun. Then I also have a a tab open again. Who knows how this thing showed up? What on earth is bullet journaling? I must have seen it like three times now. And I finally said, okay, I'm going to Google this and find out what it is. And to give you some idea of what happens when I get information overload, which right now my tabs indicate is the case is that I really want to learn what bullet journaling is, but I haven't gotten to it yet because I have so many tabs open. (laughs) In fact, doing this podcast and having a review review is a bit of a, uh, has an unintended consequence, happy consequence of being able to look through stuff and say, oh, that's right. I really wanted to learn what that is. I can take five minutes over lunch, find out what it is, and then I can shut that tab and before lunch is over, I can also read a tab that I have open. It's got a clickbait style title, which is this emotion can help you eat healthier. But the only reason I was interested in it is because it comes from, I think, the American Journal of Psychiatry or Psychological Association, something that's fairly legit. So I was willing to I was willing to go find it. A lot of times when I see things that are clickbaity, I won't click the clickbait. I'll go on to Google and search it and see if it's something worth paying any attention to. Although, of course, the very act of searching is kind of paying attention to it. Anyway, it was really neat. And the emotion that they are talking about is gratitude, which is interesting. I grew up, we always said grace. We tried to say it as quickly as possible before the great um, dive through of eight people that was our meals. And I certainly didn't really value grace as a concept. I do know that lots and lots of cultures have it. And at at events, I've kind of enjoyed it. So like a big Thanksgiving dinner, things like that. But this article suggests that whether you say it or not, the attention paid to the food and the gratitude you have for being able to eat it helps you eat healthier. Now, I have heard this recently I have seen some evidence. So, so your mind is unbelievably affecting to what happens in your body. With the uh, in recent research about the second brain, which is your gut brain, and the chatting that it does back and forth with your mind. And some of it I talked about when I reviewed how emotions are made in episode four. So it, there's evidence to suggest that when you have an identical baked good, right? And it's blueberry and you tell yourself in one scenario that it is a blueberry cupcake, and in another scenario you tell yourself that it is a blueberry muffin, your body will process the nutrients differently based on what it expects is happening here. Is it just a sugary treat that I feel guilty about, or is it something that's got some actual nutrition for my body? Well, that's pretty mind-blowing. Anyway, so when I saw that this thing about gratitude, I thought, well, that's an interesting take on it. I wonder what they have to say about that. I'll put the link to that in the um, description below this episode as well. I won't put the link to everything because I think I have 90 tabs open. I meant it when I said there are some rabbit holes I've been going down. I have a couple of Amazon tabs open with some very comfy but stylish hoodies. And then I'm looking into something that I stumbled over called the Applied Improvisation Network because so many of my podcast guests have talked about the transforming value of improv. And this doesn't surprise me at all. I've gravitated toward improv. I've taken it a lot. Honestly, my experience talking to people just makes me want to take it even more. And what I'm finding is the sheer number of places where the confidence and the process and the kindness and the supportiveness of improv turn out to be completely transferable across domains. So I'm really looking forward to finding out more about that and participating in some more improv communities. And then lastly, I have some articles uh, to support an article that I'm working on myself about great workplaces. So these are articles on humane management, mission-based management, and the uh, disaster that fear-based leaders are. And it's a common, common disaster. And once you start seeing the elements, you start seeing the symptoms of a fear-based leader, oh boy, do you start seeing it everywhere. What is interesting is whether or not you start seeing it in yourself. Um, But in any case, I'm very, very interested in what makes a workplace a healthy resilient human supporting productive workplace or what makes a workplace a nightmare where people really don't want to come in in the morning spend all their days on eggshells or applying desperately for other jobs and the business itself is still you know gaslighting itself that producti- productivity is happening when it really isn't or it's really really way down Fear is a terrible way to proceed. It makes us close-minded. It brings us into a state of tunnel vision. Malcolm Gladwell has written some about that. I'll review a book about that soon. And it leaves a lot of human capital, a lot of human potential. It leaves it in disarray. And there's just no, there's no benefit to it. So it is unfortunate that so much of the way that we proceed in our work spaces ends up being about fear or in reaction to fear or just overshadowed with fear. So anyway, so I'm working on an article about that. I hope you read it. It's a really fun one to write and I want to get that done during the holidays as well. Busy holidays, doing things that are uh, fun and enlightening and force me to get on with get out of research and get into pages of words with words on them. So I'll put a lot of the links to the things that I talked about in this episode underneath in the episode notes. Please subscribe on the various places you can subscribe. Please chat with me. I really welcome hearing from people and I really welcome talking to people. Bye-bye. it for this week's nine to thrive podcast be sure to visit working nine that's with the number nine to access links info and to join the conversation we're on twitter at nine to thrive and facebook at working nine to thrive thanks for listening